This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. It's a it's a great pleasure for us to welcome uh, Congressman Adam Smith, uh, the ranking uh, member of the uh, Armed Services uh, House Armed Services Committee, which means the ranking Democrat uh, on the committee, to talk to us today. Um, uh, Congressman Smith uh, uh, is going to talk about uh, the defense budget in the context of our larger uh, budget uh, crisis, um, and uh, the title of the talk is uh, "Defense uh, Budget." Uh, Defense spending efficiencies. Some might argue that this is a contradiction in terms, but I'm sure Congressman Smith uh, thinks otherwise and will explain uh, why. Thank you very much. I want to thank the uh, RAND uh, Corporation for uh, hosting me uh, and for all the fine work they do in research, certainly for the Department of Defense, but for many other areas of public policy as well. Um, And the necessity of defense spending efficiencies will become clear as I talk. Uh, The main point that I want to make, basically, is there are a number of folks who have looked at our defense budget challenges in isolation. Uh, On the Armed Services Committee, in fact, there are many who argue that the overall budget deficit picture and taxes and entitlements and how all that comes together really doesn't have anything to do with us. If you're on the Armed Services Committee, you are there to focus on the Department of Defense, the defense budget, and those very narrow national security needs. And we tend to get into a very lengthy fight about cutting this program or cutting that program and the impact that all of that would have on our defense spending. It's my opinion that on the Armed Services Committee. We we certainly have obligations that go beyond that as members of Congress, first of all. Um, Our obligations are to the broader country, but even as a member of the Armed Services Committee, we are responsible for national security matters. And the debt and the deficit are national security matters. As much as I would like to be able to ignore it for reasons that will become obvious as I talk about it, we can't because it is in and of itself a national security issue for a variety of different reasons. And it is a national security issue that we are studiously ignoring uh, as a country, as a Congress, just in general. Uh, We are not confronting the challenge that is in front of us. We still have the old way of approaching, approaching budget and deficit and spending issues, which is to say, divide and conquer. You know, whatever your particular interest is, you make the compelling argument for why that interest cannot afford to be cut, or in most cases, desperately needs to be increased, or if it's a tax, the reverse of that, and then you stay focused on that very, very narrow lane. And in every instance that I've seen, people who are arguing for spending in a given area are arguing against a tax increase in a given area have a very compelling argument, um, because I'll let you in on a little secret. Every single spending program is in and of itself a positive. Every single tax cut is in its, of itself a positive. If you cut spending or raise taxes, you will, in the short term, at least in a very isolated way, cause harm. Because if the government spends more money, that helps. It puts money into the economy. If the government takes less money away from a business or an individual, that helps because that business or individual is able to put more money into the economy. The problem, of course, comes from the fact that you have to raise the revenue in order to spend it. And if you put the two together, it becomes a slightly more complex picture. But we're not doing that. We're still fighting program by program, tax cut by tax cut, making the case for why we cannot touch any of these things. And I believe that jeopardizes our national security. 
So the first thing I want to do is give a sort of stark picture of where the debt and the deficit are at. And a lot of times people say that our budget is a very, very complicated issue, the debt, the deficit. And I guess past a certain level it is, but up front it's not complicated at all. It's the world's most simple math problem. Well, maybe not that simple, but it's pretty straightforward anyway. Um, this is 2011. Um, that's what we spent, that's what we took in, and that's the deficit. <coughs> that is a very, very large deficit by any measure. $1.3 trillion is an enormous amount of money, and any entity, regardless of its size, that's running a deficit, and I confess I haven't done the percentage here recently, but that's roughly 38% um, deficit. That's an enormous number, and it's a big, big, huge problem and a challenge, and based on our current projections, you know, and there's you know, current policy debates about will the tax cuts be extended and there's a whole bunch of different things that could change. But by and large, if we keep going on the pattern that we're going on without any significant changes, this doesn't change much, okay, based on our current projections of what we're going to spend. So it ain't, it ain't getting any better. And this is, well, actually, let me go to the other chart here first. This is where we spend our money, um, that $3.6 trillion that I mentioned before. So in order to get our budget balanced in a given year, you would have to cut 38% of that. And that, that's overwhelming. I mean, think about the fights that we've had in any one of these given areas over very small programs. I mean, 38% cut, I mean, a 1% cut, you know, and you have, you know, knock down, drag out battles, and normally we wind up not doing it. Um, so, that's where the money is. Now, the best way to think about it is it's roughly 56% mandatory spending uh, and then roughly 37% discretionary and the rest is interest. I guess technically I should count interest as mandatory spending. Um, it is required. So that's where it's at. And you can see defense is a little bit more than half of the discretionary budget. And just to emphasize the challenge that I mentioned earlier about how we're not really confronting the realities of these numbers, that's the purpose of this slide. And this is, this is a little bit more in keeping with your normal Department of Defense slides and that you have to look at it a little while before you can figure out what it is. I've seen slides they've put up before where I've honestly said to them, I think you're just doing this to mess with me as a member of Congress. The slide actually means nothing. You're just trying to force me to try to figure it out. Um, but this isn't that complicated. This is a poll that was taken in February of 2011 um, asking people, broadly within the defense budget, what they would like to see cut, increased, or stay about the same. And you pretty much have all the categories of spending. They might have missed one or two minor subcategories there. Uh, but in that list, that's pretty much everywhere uh, that we spend money. Um, and then at the bottom, you have some questions about taxes that want to be raised. And uh, I'm going to walk away from the microphone for just a second here. Um, this column over here adds up those who want the given program to be increased or to stay about the same, all right? Which is to say that the United States of America wants to cut nothing, not a single solitary thing, all right? And it's worse than that even because you get down to foreign aid, that's the only one that's close. Look at the rest of these numbers. It's not even a matter of like, well, 52% would rather not. I mean, you're well over two-thirds in just, well, in every category that doesn't want to cut anything. And in fact, you know, don't even get into the percentage of people who actually want to increase the amount of money that's spent on that. 
And then you go down to the tax cut portion and you see that they don't really want to raise taxes either. That's the problem, all right? You combine this with this and you are not living in a sane world. It simply doesn't add up. Now, this is a difficult and thorny problem to confront because any policymaker is by and large elected by those people. Um, so you have to make a proposal dealing with this. And the thing is, I mean, you got to make proposals to get this dealt with that are dramatic. I mean, forget a minor cut. We're talking huge to get to, you know, a 38% reduction. And we are not there, which basically my one goal out of all of this is to try to penetrate the denial about the situation we're in where the deficit is concerned. Um, we are still having those arguments about you can't cut this program, you can't cut that program in isolation, focused on that. If we don't start looking at the big picture, we're going to be in a world of hurt. Now, what does all this have to do with the defense budget? Well, it actually impacts the defense budget and national security, I believe, in three main ways. And the first one is this quote from Admiral Mullen um, when he was testifying for the Armed Services Committee, in which he said basically that the greatest threat to our national security right now is our debt and our deficit. So it in and of itself is a national security issue. So if those of us serving on the Armed Services Committee are going to live up to the, what is it, Article 1, Section 8 mandate about standing up for national security and protecting our country, then this is something that we have to care about. Now, there's sort of a broad point here that if your economy is weak, you're going to be in less strong position to defend yourself and meet your interests. But there's even more specific point, and that is as we run out of money and have less money to spend, we have less money to spend on key national security items. You know, just to give you one example, we're concerned now that we have requirements for 313 ships. We only have 289. Well, eventually, if this deficit continues, we're not going to be able to afford 289. And you can go service by service, need by need, and figure out the trouble we're going to be in. And if we can uh, go back to this chart, one of the most helpful things about this chart, and believe it or not, there is, well, sorry, the only helpful thing about this chart, is that 6% number, the interest on the debt. For the size of our debt, over $15 trillion, for it to only be 6% of the budget is a miracle. But it's happening because of the global economy and the fact that there's so much uncertainty out there that people still think of the U.S. government as being one of the safest places to put your money. So we're at unbelievably low interest rates. Well, if these numbers continue and if the interest rates go up a point or two, much less five or six, imagine if that 6% wedge was all of a sudden 20% of the budget, which is not that hard to imagine. Then you got a lot less money for defense or for anything else. So our inability to buy the ships, the planes, to expand our force, I mean, what we've always been very good at over the course of the last 100 years, it's been said that we're not good at anticipating what attacks are going to come. I've always thought that's a way overstated point because, of course, you know, it's a surprise. You didn't expect it. If you expected it, it wouldn't be a surprise. It is very difficult to predict exactly what your national security threats are, but what we do very well is we respond. We figure out, okay, what's the issue? What do we have to build? How much do we have to grow our force? And we do it. We did it in World War II. We did it most recently in Iraq as the IED problem became great. We you know, built a lot of MRAPs in a big hurry. We responded. Well, you can't respond if you don't have any money. 
That's overstated. You can't respond if you don't have as much money as you would like. So that's number one big national security impact of our, our debt and deficit on national security and our armed forces. But the other problem is, if you think about how we would confront the deficit, there's sort of three broad areas that you're going to want to look at. One is revenue. Um, certainly that's part of the equation. You can bring in more money and, and that would help. Putting aside for the moment any debate about tax reform and exactly what you do, you could bring in more revenue. That has to be part of the equation in my opinion. And then basically the budget up here uh, is divided into mandatory and discretionary spending. Now the biggest difference between all these things is in mandatory spending and in revenue, you usually have to pass a law in order to either increase the revenue or decrease mandatory spending, which means that the House, the Senate, and the President have to agree for this to happen. That's an extraordinarily difficult thing to do in the best of times, almost impossible in the current environment. But the discretionary budget, the 37% in the bottom corner of which defense is over half, all you have to do to cut that is do nothing. Because every year that money has to be appropriated. Every year the House, the Senate, and the President have to agree to actually spend it. What that means is that the discretionary portion of the budget is particularly vulnerable to our deficit math problem. And this is exactly what happened with the Budget Control Act last year. I've heard people say on the Budget Control Act that sequestration was put in place in order to force us to do something. And the thinking was if we made sequestration as painful as possible, that would require us to act. We wouldn't ever let that happen. So people voted for it thinking it won't happen. That's the whole reason it was set up. I don't actually believe that. There may have been a couple of people who were delusional enough to think that we would actually address the issue. But what happened was we were days away from the debt ceiling being breached and all the bad things that would come from that. How do we get out of this? Lord knows we don't want to confront mandatory spending or raise taxes. So the only thing to do is to dump it all on the backs of discretionary spending. So up front, we made substantial cuts in discretionary spending. And then as a backup, we said we'd make even more cuts if we didn't deal with the issue. That was simply to get us through that crisis. It was no more likely that in two or three months we were suddenly going to stand up and deal with the challenges on mandatory spending and revenue than it was when we were staring down the barrel of default. If we couldn't do it then, what was the likelihood that we were going to do it in the three months before Christmas? But it got us past the crisis. It kicked the can down the road. And that's going to keep happening. If we don't confront mandatory spending and revenue, then the discretionary portion of the budget is going to get hammered. And defense is over half of the discretionary budget, which again means that if you care about defense spending and national security, you have to care about fixing the larger debt and deficit problem and confronting mandatory spending and confronting the revenue challenges. Now the final thing um, that all this means for defense is defense does have to be part of the solution. It's 20% of now, 19% of the budget, um, roughly. So if you are 19% of a budget that is 38% out of whack, the odds are you're going to have to do something. It's going to have to impact you to some degree. So to bury our heads in the sand on the national security side and say, like everybody else, don't touch us, simply isn't going to work. Now, I happen to believe that there's a reasonable way to do that. And I think that the president and the Defense Department did that. They had a, a significant strategic review that looked at this debt and deficit issue, that looked at their needs, and came up with a 10-year plan that was realistic within the budget. 
We've also been having an endless and, and to my mind, ridiculous debate about whether or not the strategy was driven by our national security needs or was it driven by the budget. And the clear implication is that any strategy that is driven by a budget is somehow impure, heret heretical, that would be the word. Um, you know, how dare you put our national security on a budget? That strikes me as insane because every single decision that we all make is driven in part by the budget. If we had an infinite amount of money, our lives would all be vastly different in a hundred different ways, but we don't have an infinite amount of money. You have to consider the budget when you're putting together a strategy. And having considered that, they put together a pretty good strategy that plans to reduce the overall defense budget by $487 billion over the course of the next 10 years. Now, keep in mind, that is a reduction from what we were projecting to spend. It's not an actual cut. It was based on the 2012 numbers, the 2012 estimates of what we were going to spend. So in real terms, it's pretty much flatline. It's a three-tenths of 1% reduction after inflation over the course of the next 10 years and will enable us to keep spending well over $500 billion in the defense budget for a long time to come. Not only should that be enough, it has to be enough. Unless we want to come along and make dramatic cuts to mandatory spending and dramatic increases to taxes, it will have to work. Now, I do want to offer one note of caution in all of this. And there are a number of people who sort of take this and go, yeah, we got to double it. We got to cut more out of defense. And then you see the analogies of the different peace dividends that we've had um, in the Cold War, post-World War II, post-Korea, post-Vietnam. And, and the numbers are, are much greater in all of those periods in terms of what was cut from projected spending. And one statistic I heard is that if you looked at what we were projecting to spend on defense in 1986, and then where we actually wound up by 1994, it was a $1.6 trillion reduction. Now keep in mind, again, that's based on projections, not actual cuts. The problem with this scenario is we still have many of the same national security threats that we had when we did the buildup 10 years ago. This is not like World War II or the Cold War. The war is not, in fact, over. Now there's one advantage. You know, we've drawn down completely out of Iraq. We are on pace to draw down of Af out of Afghanistan. We've changed that strategy so we have less of a forward commitment. And there is savings to be found in not having somewhere in the neighborhood of 200,000 troops deployed in a war zone, certainly. But look at some of the other national security threats that we have. Our need to contain and deter North Korea is no less now than it was 10 years ago. Arguably, it's greater. Our need to deter and contain Iran is unquestionably greater than it was 10 years ago. <clears throat> Our need to have a robust presence in Asia as, as a reasonable counterweight to China's rise and to reassure our allies there uh, that they do still have a friend and they don't simply have to bow to whatever China wants is again, no less than it was 10 years ago. And Al-Qaeda has not surrendered. They declared war against us in 1996 and that is still their opinion. They are still fighting that war. Now, we've been very successful uh, in containing them, uh, but it is still a battle and still a fight in Afghanistan and Pakistan and Yemen and Somalia, spreading to other parts of Africa. So those needs are still there. That is why I don't have the enthusiasm for saying that we could double those defense cuts and not have to worry about it. We have needs and demands that are going to continue. What we have to do, and this will be the final point I'll make before I take your questions, there are also ways that we can get more out of the money that we've spent. 
And I think there's a whole lot of people in this room who know this stuff a lot better than I do, so I'll just say it quickly. In the last 10 years, we have wasted an enormous amount of money um, in the Department of Defense. Now, part of that, we were reacting quickly to the you know, post 9-11 world. Um, it was an emergency. You don't make as good rational and you know, economic decisions in those situations as you otherwise would, uh, but it's not all attributable to that. Our acquisition and procurement process has had projects that have gone way, way over budget, many of which have had to be canceled because they didn't work out. Um, and I, there have been a number of studies that have looked at this and said, here's what you need to do different. And basically what you need to do different is be more realistic in what you're going to get out of a given system or program. Um, future combat systems, the F-35, the expeditionary fighting vehicle, the littoral combat ship, the list goes on of programs where we imagined that you know, there was going to be some perfect system out there, and I have to do this joke because I enjoy it. Um, the Austin Powers thing, it's like, all I want is sharks with frickin' laser beams attached to them. Okay? There was a little too much of that going on um, in the Pentagon. The notion that if you want it, if you can visualize it, if you can put it on a computer screen, then why the hell can't you build it? Um, we have to change that attitude. We have to bring that back under control. We also have to do something about the tyranny of the program of record. We put out this endless list of requirements, create a program of record, um, and then that's all we can do. Meanwhile, the rest of our fast-paced, innovative, rapidly changing world is moving all over the place. And there's all kinds of good technologies that are developing, but you know what? Eight years ago, we said we were going to buy this, so we're going to keep pouring money down this rat hole instead of buying the commercial off-the-shelf technology that is developed on its own. And the beauty of that is we, didn't, we don't have to pay for it. We don't have to pay for the R&D and the development. That's how rapidly technology is coming. We've got to take advantage of this. Now, everything I just said, you could go over to the Pentagon and you would, without any trouble, run into 10 people who would go, yes, that's absolutely right. That's exactly what we have to do. It's not happening, okay? I can't say for sure why it's not happening. I do not have a PhD in the Pentagon bureaucracy. Um, I don't know of too many people who do. I can't say for sure. But all of this has to be a sense of urgency. We simply cannot afford those same mistakes that we've made before. And we've, we've learned, we know how to make these changes, but we're very entrenched in the old ways of acquiring and procuring things. And, and we could pass another dozen acquisition reform bills in Congress. It is about implementation. It's about the program managers and leadership in the Pentagon making the individual decisions to make these changes. And then the second thing it is about is it is about Congress backing them up on that. Once they've made that decision, you can't then have some member of Congress say, well, you know, and I, I've heard this a number of times, that, you know, when I first saw this, you know, it was a local issue. But now I'm convinced that it's the single most important thing for our national security, so we have to protect this. We in Congress have to get past that as well. So I believe that we can save that money. I believe that we can make some strategic decisions to get more out of what we spend. Certainly, we can draw down the size of our ground forces, given that we're coming out of Iraq and Afghanistan. And there are other places throughout the Pentagon budget in which savings can be found. Again, I think the $487 billion figure um, that has been settled upon is a pretty good place to start. It's quite possible we could find more. But the overwhelming message that I want to try to deliver, and it's a message that people are going to be very resistant to, is this is a crisis. And a crisis changes the equation. The same old arguments that you've had that might have applied when we were running a surplus simply do not apply now. It is not enough 
to take any one tiny little piece of this, or sometimes I have a revenue chart there too, I skipped it today, or any one tiny piece of the revenue chart and say, no, but you don't understand. You know, the estate tax would be devastating and here's why. Or no, you don't understand, you can't possibly make a reduction because this will have a disproportionate. Yeah, when you are in this situation, you are gonna have to make some decisions that you'd rather not make. And what we're doing right now is sticking our fingers in our ear and going, I don't want to see it, I don't want to hear it. Problem is, whether you want to see it, whether you want to hear it or not, it's happening. And as it happens, bad things come with it. Not just the overall problem, but as I said, if you want to know what bad things I'm talking about, just look at the Budget Control Act. That's the kind of thing that happens when you don't confront the overall problem and the overall challenge. I lied, actually, I want to fire off one more quick point. And also, the uncertainty of all of this is almost as bad as the reality. Because as we sit here today, all of the Bush tax cuts are set to expire at the end of this year. Sequestration is set to kick in. That is trillions of dollars in difference as to whether or not that happens exactly as current policy would have it happen, or current law would have it happen, or not. So businesses out there are not hiring people. They're laying people off because they don't know. Now, maybe Congress does what it typically does and at the absolute 11th hour comes up with something to make sure that all the tax cuts don't come back and sequestration doesn't happen. But if you're a business, you can't count on that. You got to start planning. The longer we wait to confront this problem, the worse it is and the more that uncertainty and the reality of the size of the deficit eat away at us. And I will agree with Admiral Mullen. There is no greater national security issue for this country, whether you serve on the Armed Services Committee in Congress or simply a, a resident of the United States of America, no greater issue than trying to realistically and reasonably confront um, the deficit that we have, the fact that we are not taking in anywhere near as much money as we're planning on spending. Um, thank you very much. I appreciate the chance. I will. Uh, Take your questions. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.